just because, you know, all the individuals in our organization are capable of adapting, it doesn't really mean our whole organization adapts. More often than not, if you have a lot of churn, what this kind of means is that adaptive individuals are adapting themselves out of slowly adapting organizations. As with any organization, it really has to start foundationally with culture. The culture has to be aligned from top down, bottom up, middle out, side to side. Everybody focus on that change mindset. And if you remember back to our uh, Conway quote, the change we seek is comprehensive. It's organizational, it's structural, and it's infrastructural. So all of the elements have to contribute to this further change. And especially so, I find that usually kind of these sort of process and technical changes are delegated to a small group within the company. But I feel that for a whole organization to be adaptive, every stakeholder has a few responsibility on their shoulders to adapt, learn, and change. Welcome everyone to Section Cut, our first ever conference dedicated to the stories of leaders who are innovating on practice operations. I'm delighted to introduce our first speaker on the firm stage today, Lebo Lee, for a workshop on operationalizing work towards adaptive organizations. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Lebo on the stage. How's it going, Lebo? Good. Thank you, George. How are you? Good, good. Uh, this is going to be really, really cool and fun. I can't wait. So uh, I'll let you do it. Amazing. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Organizing Work Towards Adaptive Organizations. One thing to note is I do have a tendency to talk really fast, especially when I'm nervous. So I'll try to keep an eye on the chat. If I'm going too fast, just holler there and I'll try to slow down. The presentation today will be in three parts. Um, one, we'll go over why we need to organize work and why we need to become adaptive organizations. Two is probably what everyone's here for. I'll take you through an introduction to Notion and some pre-built examples where we can build. And then if you're feeling uh, frisky, we can go through together and build some things uh, in Notion together. If you don't already have a Notion account, this is a great time to go to notion.so, which I will type in the chat to register for a free account. And with a free account, you should be able to do everything that I'm showing you today. So before you guys believe everything I say, um, I want to give you guys a little bit of background on where this perspective is coming from. I started in architecture before kind of taking a long-winded road to where I'm now um, as the chief technology officer at Catalyst. At Catalyst, our goal is to dramatically increase the efficiency of construction value chain of build programs by uh, taking a prioritized approach as well as a deeply integrated connection with the construction supply chain. My role is to build a team that's building a tool ecosystem that changes the way we conceptualize, plan for, analyze, and manage these construction programs. One thread that's been a constant driver throughout uh, my various journeys and adventures is the relationship between the real and digital space. Even in non-architecture roles, critical design is something I find that's really important, whether that's designing processes, organizations, tool ecosystems, or just you know how teams work together. Being in a well-run operation just feels different and it's something that I try to build and I try to strive to be a part of. So the content we're going through comes from this short experience. I've been through many companies, big and small. I've seen many different ways to communicate, organize work. And this is sort of a summary of those learnings for you. A note, if you don't code, I'm obligated to tell you that you should. And now is always the best time. And in non-design and coding topics, if you love plants or know my wife, I would love to you know, have a chat with you about those topics as well. Let's begin. Thank you for joining me. Uh, this is the value that I hope I'm able to provide you with the time that you're giving me. 
I think one, everybody can agree on the world is changing extremely fast and we're all feeling it. But I want to impress upon you that how we communicate is the limiting factor on how quickly we can change as an organization. Technology, although it could be scary sometimes, is actually innately human and something that's very part, very much part of how we change and how we adapt. As an organization, culture has to be the foundation upon which these adaptive organizations can be built. And achieving this adaptiveness is key to organizational survival. What's going to be an increasingly competitive landscape for not only design companies, but all sorts of different kind of value add firms. No organization operates in isolation. So if you've been to one of my talks before, I beat this quote like a dead horse, but organizations which design systems are constrained to produce designs which are copies of the communicating structures of those organizations. This has been true for almost every organization I've been a part of, whether that's big, small, you know, technology-based, or even design. Corb says a house is a machine for living in, and as designers, we're responsible for the effectiveness of the machines we built. So how we organize has a huge impact on how we go about design. And in a way, how can we be sure that we are designing good spaces when we're not even sure that we have good organizational communications among our team? We need to adapt because our design context is changing. There's more data points, more optimizations that clients are looking from us. And these decisions are made at breakneck speeds in a constantly changing environment. We're constantly being asked to rework something later in the design process because of a new event or some new impact. The same practices we use today won't meet the demands of tomorrow. And that's just true, right? Like the stuff that we were doing years ago isn't the stuff we're doing today. And we have to continue to adapt and sharpen our skill sets in order to meet what we know to be heavier demands in the future. Technology is also changing the way that we interact with the built environment. Things like reality capture and autonomous driving are rapidly changing how we can capture data about the world. More and more, customers are demanding more complex digital outputs for their use cases. So one example is a company that required a BIM model output so they can do manufacturing simulations in their sort of simulation platform. As you know, like in 2020 with COVID, typological change will increase in the future and different advancements will put a different stress on this type of space. I came from WeWork and WeWork is an example of a company that vertically integrated to make space use turnover much more efficient. And that's just one of the many space use strategies that will compete for space now and in the future. And as we get asked to design for these new typologies in new social and legal contexts with novel tools and materials, the very nature of how we organize will have to be in constant flux. Technology is awesome and I love it, but in a lot of organizations, it feels like we're not actually working with technology. It feels like we're slogging through information, not finding what we need in contextualized solutions to contextualize our decisions. And we have to kind of go on an information searching mission every time we do something. As designers, I think we need to take a critical eye beyond what's drawn on paper to analyze everything that contextualizes why that paper is in front of us, helping us make that decision. We need to ask, would we design buildings the same way our operations are run on? And if so, we would even work or live in the buildings that are an outcome of the form of our practice operations. So anyone who's been at the end of an email chain, like the top left diagram, has kind of felt this pain, right? Like, sure, we're using digital tools, we're, we're typing, but it's just as frustrating to find, figure out what's going on. You kind of have to read through all the discussions, all of it just to figure out what is the actual piece of information that you're actually needed for. And on top of that, a lot of times while you're reading through that email, someone will email or DM you and be like, hey, have you seen that email? And across all of this process, just imagine how much value at time is sucked out of an organization based on these non-value add activities. A lot of focus in terms of technology gets put on things like BIM and generative design as 
firms using technology, but a bigger focus should be put on how we use technology in operation. Sources of truths appear in, in companies, but they're rarely the sources of truths that look like the bottom diagram, where information is flowing and work is contextualized on an individual feedback basis. One of the core issues that I think is preventing us from going from the top to the bottom is our, how tied we are to paper-based processes. Organizations often see folder structures as a natural inevitability, but really we should ask why is that the case? We no longer have large kind of filing rooms full of cabinets, but why are we then racing to create a digital analog of just the same physical space? A lot of the information that we're interpreting from these uh, paper-based mediums, like sheet sets, blue beam sessions, are data that we can easily access as pure data through a spreadsheet, through a query call, through some sort of data first mechanism, instead of kind of converting it down to paper to be re-communicated again. Moving past paper is going to be a huge struggle. And the thing that is preventing us from moving past this paper-based process is the capability of communicating on different media. You wouldn't hire a designer who can't communicate through drawings, right? Using drawings as a communication medium requires two parts. One, the person who can capture idea through that drawing and the reader who can then reasonably understand the same idea through that interpretation. What we have kind of within the design community is agreement, right? We agree what a floor plan looks like, what a door looks like, and the agreement of symbols is what allows a paper-based communication to be rich and richly communicate design ideas. It's the same for any other form of communication, speech, writing, film, even data sets. The throughput and the fidelity of the idea communicated is limited by the capability of the giver to capture the information in the medium and the capability of the receiver to access and gain insight into it. Using BIM as an example, like I need to know BIM to make a good building information model, but I also need to know BIM for that model to be a communication tool that's useful for me. Anyone who's gone from Revit to PDF um, has kind of felt this pain because what you're really doing is in a way dumbing down your a higher fidelity communication medium down into a lower fidelity communication medium for a receiver that's only capable of receiving information in that kind of 2D form. Um, that might be a little scary, but uh, one thing I want to impress upon you is that technology and using technology is in our very nature. Building these cables should feel natural for us because it's the very thing that ensured our survival and dominance as the apex species on this planet. Francis Evans has a bipedalism theory that states that we started walking upright because of our tool use and by extension, tool making. If you think about a stick, a stick has unlimited uses when it's paired with a human and a creative brain to think about all the things that that stick is capable of. Evans points out and posits that our life with tools became too useful to waste our hands on knuckle walking. So think about that. Our life with tools became too useful to waste our hands on knuckle walking, which means that tools and tool making is a fundamental importance to how we act as a community, as a civilization. We all know kind of the Stone Age and Stone Age tools, but those are only the oldest tools that are still remaining. They're the most resistant to biodegradation. Earlier tools are probable and definitely possible. Another thing that Evans introduces that I think is really important for us to see behind is these two perspectives. One, the homo bricolere, or humans as the thing user, someone who finds and uses tools. And two, the homo faber, a tool maker, right? One person who just sees the world and sees the context and is able to see tools out there and use them. But the other is able to imagine a future world where tools exist and newer possibilities exist. One great example of this is the bicycle diagram on the left. This is pulled from an old Steve Jobs interview where he really explains that the man on the bicycle is vastly more efficient than man alone compared to other animals. 
And it's that our ability to not only use tools, but also make tools with tools that make us a better fit and more adaptable than any other animal on the planet. So tools making tools is what creates a magnifying effect that has made us exponentially more productive and capable as a civilization. A thing user can always find and learn how to ride a bike, but it takes a tool maker to imagine and build a car. The thing users can only optimize efficiency in the world that as exists today, but the tool maker can build a world where deeper optimizations can occur in the future. Especially within the design community, I feel that we're losing that sense of tool building, especially with kind of the digital tools that are available to us. In a way, I feel we're delegating a lot of the creativity and the responsibility of toolmaking to technology firms like Autodesk and Epic, and we're just really dealing with the consequences of what they produce for us. When we sit in front of a computer and expect software to do whatever we want it to do, we are, in a way, letting ourselves become thing users rather than actively taking our responsibility as tool makers. So if you are a tool user today, I highly encourage you to think about becoming a tool maker because tool use and tool building is central to if and how an organization can adapt to new situations. If you want to read the paper, it's a great one. It's called Two Legs, Think Using and Talking, The Origins of the Creative Engineering Mind. Just because you know all the individuals in our organization are capable of adapting, it doesn't really mean our whole organization adapts. More often than not, if you have a lot of churn, what this kind of means is that adaptive individuals are adapting themselves out of slowly adapting organizations. As with any organization, it really has to start foundationally with culture. The culture has to be aligned from top down, bottom up, middle out, side to side. Everybody focus on that change mindset. And if you remember back to our uh, Conway quote, the change we seek is comprehensive. It's organizational, it's structural, and it's infrastructural. So all of the th- elements have to contribute to this further change. And especially so, I find that usually kind of these sort of process and technical changes are delegated to a small group within the company. But I feel that for a whole organization to be adaptive, every stakeholder has a few responsibility on their shoulders to adapt, learn, and change. It's not only a small group that has to change. Everybody has to change together. An adaptive organization has to be willing to question everything, especially the things that has worked well historically. If we're looking at everything with a critical eye... The least questioned processes are often the ones with the greatest improvement opportunity. With this right culture, we can then expand our tool of capabilities, right? Because capabilities are what limits our organizational possibility. And unless an organization has the required capabilities internalized, we really can't really see the potential outcomes of our future and our change. Um, If you take BIM for an example, if only 5% of our company is using BIM on a day-to-day basis, it really means that 95% of our company is blind to the possibilities of that workflow and the tools. So just like thinking through drawing, you don't learn to perceive the world in diagram by looking at other people's drawings. You have to do it yourself. So we have to kind of take this action, go through the steps, understand what these tools are capable of to truly imagine an organization that uh, can adapt towards that future state. So, you know, we have the right culture and everyone's a scripting ninja. We're good, right? Not quite. What we also need to do as an organization is build a structure for experiment, experimentation, iteration, and improvement. Because without experimentation, we won't know what works and what doesn't. We hear a lot, move fast and break things. But it glosses over the fact that the key to moving fast is also being able to safely break things. Because a safety net for failed experimentation is what allows each capable individual to take a greater risk, which carries with it a higher chance of discovering something that works much better than anticipated. As individuals and teams take risks, build new tools and processes, the whole organization learns from their success and failure. 
And because the whole organization is capable of taking what is produced, adapting it to their localized use cases, and then scaling it across that diversity, this produces an adaptive organization where one experiment can trigger a kind of a process and operational improvement that spans across the entire company. If you're not scared about the things that our organizations are going to have to learn to adapt, I really envy your foresight because my obsolescence and my ability to build teams and build processes like this is what keeps me up at night because there's always someone else who is trying to do something better and they're just going to out-survive what I'm trying to build. So being adaptable is important, but also knowing how to adapt and where to adapt is just as important because if you're adapting in the wrong direction, you're just moving quicker towards your demise. Adaptation, as defined biologically, is a process of change by which an organism or species is becoming better suited to its environment. The key word is better. Adaptation means we're getting better, but we have to know that we're getting better. And to know that, we have to be heavily sensitive to where we are in our competitive landscape. How well we adapt is dependent on all the changes in our market conditions and the changes from current and future competitors in response. Not only do we have to have a great read on what's going on, we also have to have a decent read on what other people are doing in order to ensure our long-term survival. This is why adaptive organizations need a high degree of internal and external sensitivity. And that sensitivity is, in essence, shortening the gap between an action and the appropriate feedback wherever it occurs across the organization. So to achieve that sensitivity, I want to introduce kind of two rough concepts. One is the notion of blocking events. And the second is the notion of independent action. So blocking events are like internal approval or synchronization meetings that put a time block on when actions can occur. So whoever's receiving that signal has to wait for that event to happen before they can make the appropriate reaction. The more blocking events are on a calendar, this is a good indicator of how, how little sensitivity the organization has because an appropriately large reaction to any issue may be blocked by many of these time blocking events. And by the time the reaction occurs, it's way past the event that's prompted it and it might not even be a necessary action. And worse, it might even be a detrimental action towards your operations. Independent action is on the other side of that coin. It's giving the ability for individuals to act on behalf of the company. This greatly increases our sensitivity because that individual with agency is like an organizational reflex. That appropriate reaction can occur immediately after the action that prompted it. And that user and that individual has agency to do so because they're backed up by an, that organizational way of thinking, that organizational adaptiveness. So they have a high level of certainty to say, hey, I can react like this because our whole organization will react like this. This is something that's kind of easy to say, but extremely, extremely hard to do. Giving individuals the guidance on decision-making, as well as the emotional and social safety to make those decisions requires a hugely active investment on process tooling and structure on behalf of the entire firm. So in organizations where I felt that exponential growth, new possibilities are emerging faster than I can keep track. It's both scary and exciting, but I think that it, for me is a hallmark of being an adaptive organization because that excitement, that fear is what energizes you to keep moving forward. Okay, so... Let's use a tool to make a tool to organize our work. You know, generally what we're really looking for one of these like project management tools is like, you know, standardizing some operating procedures, leveling task sizing and pacing and, you know, resourcing review procedures and tools. But as we, you know, look at this example and build these things, these are some things I want to uh, keep in mind. Where else am I keeping that data that's as relevant to what we're tracking? Is it in a place that's accessible to everyone or is it on a piece of paper on my desk? What do I care about looking at in my role that makes me that makes me a better decision maker, right? What are the 
information that I need to see without the information I don't need to see that fully contextualizes my current action. And finally, how many emails and DMs are this really saving me? Because the less DMs and less emails I'm going through is more uh, things that I'm spending on high value work. Hope everyone registered their uh, Notion account. We're going to begin with a little introduction to Notion. So if you haven't worked with Notion before, like a lot of other tools, it's you can kind of think of it as fundamentally an information management tool. Um, there's things like Airtable, you know, Wikimedia, lots of, I guess, tools to build tools are emerging in the current digital market. And the concepts that we're going through here should be applicable across these platforms with some minor differences. So the core building blocks of Notion are pages and blocks. Pages and blocks are almost the same thing. Every block may not be a page, but every page is a block. Pages control how you look at information. So here we're on an introduction to Notion, a page, and all the blocks containing here are built for that purpose, for me to introduce you to the various features of Notion. This is a block. It's a linked table, one of the types of things you can insert into a page. You can also insert you know, another page that's contained within. So here, maybe mini guide to Notion, something that maybe in a longer workshop, I'll fill out. It can also be an Airtable embed. So if you have something a spreadsheet or something that's tracked elsewhere, but you want it contained kind of within the same page, you can embed it here. Videos, all kinds of stuff. If you type forward slash, Notion will give you a list of blocks that's available to you. And they're constantly building and expanding on this list. The second thing you need to know about Notion is tables and databases. So a part of our effort to create repeatable processes is really about creating consistent data sets across kind of our business. Tables and databases are a way to do this because what you're really doing when you create a data set is you're saying, hey, this table, every record within it is of a particular type. So here we see a people table and every single record here is a person. So what are the properties of a person that we care about? We care about what type of people they are, whether they're an employee, a contractor, or maybe even a client. We want a photo of them so we can see what they look like. And maybe they're assigned as a project lead to, uh, to some project, and they may be assigned to some tasks, and they have a role. As we design other objects like projects, tasks, even you know typologies, we can think of those as kind of these repeatable units. So every time we're creating it, we're in a way describing an object. And but the way that we create objects are reflective of how our organization sees these objects conceptually in the real world. A object's properties are constantly in flux, and it's kind of this consensus agreement that you're building, right? If your table structure looks like this, that means you know there's some sort of vast agreement across the company that's like, hey, this is how we think about projects in general. Relationships are how those objects connect with each other. A project can have many team members. A project can have a team lead. A project can have uh, a typology and a product can have many tasks, right? All of these things are just relationships between these conceptual objects we're maintaining as a company. Templates are a really powerful feature in Notion. And in general, anytime you get an opportunity to make a template, please do so. Not only do templates make someone else's life easier, but it's really that first element of repeatable work. It's what you're saying is like, hey, use this template. This template is what we think as a firm is best practice for this particular task. I built a sample data set just so we can go through what the outcome of some of this building looks will look like. So here, my very fancy, efficient architecture studio. We don't need days. We can just build your building in minutes. If you want to come to our homepage, what you probably care about is our list of projects, You know what we're working on, and a nice little table of our people. You'll notice here that there's some weird stuff. There's this data and there's this personal pages. Um, but if you look to the left on this kind of little dropdown, what Notion is doing is it's structuring 
kind of that containment. So a page is a container for blocks and that kind of nesting goes all the way down. So if, as we click down here, we, we're seeing kind of exactly what the tree structure of our data container looks like each of the ways down. So if I click into data, data is a block on the buildings and minutes page, but it itself is a page container. And this is a best practice that I like to use whenever I start a new Notion project is I like to keep all the things that are my source of truth in one page. So if you notice here, none of these table blocks have an arrow next to them. That means that these, the source of truth is in the data page and anywhere else you see it, it should have that little arrow because that's a reference to that data here. Same thing with personal pages. This is not a data sort of box, but this is a page box. So what this page is saying, hey, anybody who can come in here, make a personal page. And this is kind of your personal perspective on what the information that you need from the company is. So let's go through, I guess, one of the one of the examples of what a use-based page could look like. So here we have a project page, but this project is, again, a record in this table. So when we open it, it automatically makes us do certain things like say, hey, what is the type that you're building? Who is your project lead? What's your project team? Where is it located? Project start, project end, and a list of tasks that are related to it. But every project may have some custom things that we want to track. Right. If we're building a house, maybe we want to put in a map. Maybe we want to have some meeting minutes. Maybe we want to see the tasks on a calendar. But all of these things are customizable to us in the way that we want this project page to look. The way that I like to think about this is every time you're making an internal page like this, you are serving internal customers, right? Whether it's someone on the other side of the firm, maybe a partner just wants to know what products are look like, or, you know, someone on the sales and saying, hey, look at all the great projects we're doing that are single family. They can come in here and access this information and read it the way that you want to present it. In a different project, we might look at things a little bit differently, right? Maybe our company has never built a Pokemon Center before, so we need to do a ton of research. So maybe what we're collecting on this project page is a bunch of research topics that we can then later reference as we go through our design. Because we're doing a lot of task planning, maybe not a lot of task dating yet, we want to keep our tasks in a list. So that's the project side. What about the people side, right? As an individual, how do I build a page for me? So, you know, I can come in, open this page at the top of the day, and then just, you know, have the right information in front of me and go through my work. So let's say I'm an intern. What I care about is open the page. What do I have to get done this week? So what I did here is link in the task table and position a filter where the assignment is assigned to me and the due date is before one week from now. So what this gives me is a consistent Kanban board that can come to kind of repeatedly to move things from the left to the right. What do I have to do? Click into it. Okay, it's for this project. If I need project context, all of it's there. Just do the task, right? If I need to make some notes or you know have a sub to do list for that task, I can just again put it in this page. You know, maybe I know my project manager loves to overload me with work. Maybe I want to get a little ahead. It's like, hey, you know, on a calendar, can I see what's been assigned to me in the next few weeks? So that instead of, you know, being crushed on a Wednesday, I can say three Wednesdays ahead, like, hey, can you move some of my tasks around? Because, you know, I have all of these things I need to do. In a very different perspective, as a project manager, what I might be looking at is my tasks across multiple projects, right? How are they overlapping? How are they uh, conflicting with each other? Maybe Isaac, I heard from Isaac and Isaac says he's probably too busy and I need to take some tasks off of him and move it later. So, you know, site selection, probably could drag it back two weeks. You know, point cloud registration, let's drag it back. I don't know, schematic. But when we go back to Isaac's page, 
all of it's updated and my task list gets shorter because you know whatever project manager Molly did on her page is again reflected on on my page. And in the same way, you can build pages for any sort of processes. I think one of the things that I found really effective is kind of these weekly reviews where you're creating a page based on a project that goes over, hey, what did we do this week? And all you really need to do is do that filter. What project is this task for? And its due date is you know, between these two dates. And that gives me a full list of what's being done this week. And even before the review, if I make this page, as tasks are being completed and changed, I can see that update on this page. I also want to look at next week. It's the same thing, right? I can create a filter that contains this project that is in between these two time gates. And that, no matter who's updating or like who's adding or changing information, I know that if I'm reviewing, I can always come to this page and know that this is a list of things this week and this is a list of things next week. So with that, should we do some, I guess, hands-on activities? Everyone's got their Notion page, right? I think everybody does. Uh, and we also have a question from someone in the audience. By the way, just crazy. I, I don't know if you saw, but I wrote that the insights per minute on this was just mind-blowing. People are going to need a transcription of it just to kind of like digest and let it marinate. But Siobhan asks, do you have any recommendations for beginners interested in learning to code? Points of entry, specific resources, etc.? Yes. So I like to say, like, always start with what you know. You know, if you're working project management, like office automation tools are probably where you want to first go. Um, if you're a designer, maybe some sort of scripting is a good step in. But I think for me, it's like having a project that you're really interested in is far more important than, say, picking the right language or picking the right tool, because that's a far better motivator than any of the other things. Awesome. Can you speak just a little bit about, um, as a kind of final question, I love your thoughts on this, but it seems like you know, having the growth mindset is um, in general, right, as an organization is the most foundational component because you can't even think about building your own tools if you're not comfortable with change because of mm-hmm. all the things you have, all the things you talked about, the acceptance of failure, of iteration, of enablement of other people on your team to be able to do, be autonomous. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely tough for any organization to get there, but in the few moments that I've been fortunate to experience it, it's truly powerful. You know, for me, I think WeWork was one of those environments where because there's so many people, so many things going on, I was allowed to fail. I had the time to say, hey, you know, the way that we're doing programming maps are really efficient. We shouldn't be retracing Google Maps. Let me learn to code, build a tool that now automates this process where we just type in an address and sort of all the drawings we could just take a screen capture of. But right, if I had failed, I still need to make sure that, you know, I'm not going to get fired. I still have a job and I'm still a meaningful contributor to the company. So I think that safety net allowed someone like me to make that first decision of, hey, let me take a risk. Let me try to make this better. Amazing. I mean, I think that mindset, you know, if organizations allowed for that and team members knew and internalized that themselves, that they can take that initiative, it's pretty much limitless in what a company could could end up doing. Well, that's all the time we have for today with you, Debo, but thank you so much for joining us. It was amazing. have to get you to come back and do another workshop of some sort, but thank you again. Everyone in the comments is just going wild. Thank y'all. Hope y'all learned something. And uh, thank you, George, for inviting me. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.